Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. The coming episodes of the Matan Podcast, One on One, will be delving into women writing, writing Torah books, halachic responsa, writing modern Jewish wisdom, translating. In these conversations, we explore where their relationship with learning meets their identity as writers, how their creative identity intersects with their identity as women. For some, these aspects of self live in harmony, and for others, there is tension. Writing has been a part of my life for a long time. I even chose creative writing as my second major in college. A love for the written word, for me, is really quite primal. I relate to the quote from Gloria Steinman, writing is the only thing that when I do it, I don't feel I should be doing something else. I love love the privacy that the written word allows us, that someone can look at you when you're reading and have no idea what you're experiencing internally. You might be in suspense, crestfallen, disgusted, intrigued, but it's your inner world. It's an enrichment and addition of layers that can only happen between our soul and the written word. I love the art that goes into making a penetrating piece of writing. What I see as a divine interplay between the intentions an author consciously views in their work and what makes it in there through subconscious intent. For some, writing is a direct extension of the mind. For others, of their soul. And still for others, both. A deep love and appreciation for writing and reading is something I learned from my father, Zichon Levracha, Asher Fogel, who was a lawyer in his daily life, in which he did a lot of professional writing, but really he had an unbridled appreciation and sophistication for all things written, particularly for academic Jewish writing. I'm so grateful that you've joined us for these episodes, in which I explore the creative process with these eloquent, humble, and remarkable women. We will hear about their passions and what they aspire to achieve through writing, but I also seek to understand what moves them. How has writing changed them and their careers? Is being a religious female writer an identity that resonates with them and influences their process and decisions, or perhaps not at all? Each episode takes us into a different space, each woman with a unique story and a unique area of expertise. I hope, above all, that these episodes inspire, move, and that they may even inspire you to sit down and write and to create something that really requires intention to put aside that time and actually and actually accomplish it. Ravneet Zorla Rosin is the director of Shaila, Matan Women's Online Responsa. She is a certified Toinet Rabbanit and a graduate of Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute and of Hilchata, Matan's Advanced Halachic Institute, and is a certified Meshivat Halacha. Surla headed Mativta, Matan's Advanced Talmud Program, for four years. Fran Miller is the Projects and Activities Coordinator for Matan Shaila, a teacher for Web Yeshiva and Torah tutors, a Kala teacher, and a Yuetzat Halacha. She studied in Matan's Machon Atamudi in 2011 and is now in her second year at Hilchata, Matan's Program for the Advanced Study of Halacha. Surla and Fran, it's a pleasure to have you here today. I'm so excited to be here after spending so many months at home in front of Zoom classes and writing. And it's just so refreshing to see people to converse about Torah, about Halakha face to face. Yeah, there really is, a, is no substitute for that. We're in our series now of women in writing. Uh, and what we're trying to do is to really talk about this subject of women writing Torah from a number of angles. And, and our goal for today is to to get a little bit deeper into the world of women writing halakha. And when I mean writing halakha, in this case, we'll be talking about responsa. But the world of women's serious Torah study has been going on for a number of decades now. And certainly in Matan, uh, the Hilchata program has also taken that uh, a step up. And part of what makes halachic learning uh, more permanent and leave a more permanent mark in the world is through putting it into writing, whether that'll be in shutim, in responsa, uh, there will always be the oral uh, conversation and the 
the advice given uh, to people in person, but there's something uh, really unique and special and necessary about taking it to the level of actually writing um, so that people get used to seeing women uh, in that role as well of being those who are also behind that which lasts for generations. So that is a little bit what we would like to get at today. And we're going to look at it through the prism of the program that uh, that you both are, are involved in and really spearheading in Matan. Before we dig deep into Shaila itself, I, we could spend our entire time together today speaking about your background in learning, but I guess I would want to hear from each of you briefly just to share how it is that you got engaged in in deep Torah study. And I would say, I think both of you are really in the world of halakha, Talmud, right, based on your backgrounds. Um, how, how did you get to that specific niche? I guess, Fran, we could start with you. Sure. Um, so I started learning Gemara in Stern College, and I just really loved it. It's interesting. It's fun. Were you in Israel for the year before that? I went to Migdolos in the middle of my Stern experience. I did early admissions and then oh, went wow. to Migdolos. So I spent a bunch of years learning Migdolos in the advanced Talmud program there. Um, and something I really pursued, and I was very much in the, uh, specifically the Gemara field for a while, not so much Halacha. Learned Halacha Biyun. Um, but really teaching Gemara, tech skills, analytical skills, um, much more focus on Gemara um, until I started the Yotzer Halacha program in Nishmat. Um, and after, you know, it was a transition to get into the world of Halacha. Um, and after I did that program, I felt like, what a, so we learned Tarot HaMishpacha uh, in depth there. And I felt like, what about the other areas of Halacha? Like, I want to know it on that level. People ask me questions. I want to also know Shabbat and Kashrut. And that's when I decided to come to Hilchata. So I'm in the middle of, you know, doing, finishing my second year of our five-year program. Wow. Um, I, I hope to be there in the future. <laughs> it is. It's a very different world. And it really is a, a transition, a totally big transition. And also... It causes, we'll get to this a little bit later, I hope, but it causes us to be reflective about our own halachic observance, I think, also, when we're engaged in that act of learning. We'll, we'll get back on that. Yeah, Sarila, please let it tell us. I have somewhat of a different story. When we lived in England for three years, originally from Israel, and then we traveled to London for three years, I went to a Haredi school. I chose to go to a Haredi school. And I gained so much from being in the Haredi world as far as working on your midot, as far as focusing on Irat Shamayim, which isn't really text-based. And um, while we were in school, we had different classes, Kodesh classes. And at the end of the three years in high school, we were taken to some resort. And... um, on the upper floor of that special place in England, in rural England, there was a beautiful room, which was the room of Talmud Torah. It was a Beit Midrash. And all my friends, all my, you know, classmates walked into the room, were so enthusiastic about the way the room looked. It was beautiful. It had ancient books on an ancient carpet. And it was just a breathtakingly beautiful room. And they walked around the room and they said, oh, how nice, how Heimish. And when they walked out, I stood in the middle of the room. I looked at all the bookcases and I basically burst out crying. And I was thinking to myself, that's the only thing they're going to be able to say about this magnanimous literature of everything that defines our life as Jewish people, as Jewish women. So I I didn't vow, but I made a promise to myself that whenever I get back to Israel, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to study Torah and I'm going to make these books accessible to me. I wasn't even thinking about teaching it to other people. It was just, I need to know this. I need to embark on this journey. So that you wouldn't be a stranger in your own closet of of Torah literature, meaning that it would be something that's familiar to you and that you would be deeply engaged in. I mean, you didn't like that feeling of a feeling that you were staring at it from afar? Yes, of alienation, of of something that defines me so deeply, and I have no toolkit to even open the books that tell me who I am, what it is that I'm observing. 
Um, so when we got back to Israel, I uh, joined a high school that was teaching, but was teaching mostly Machshava, was teaching mostly Torah Eretz Israel. We weren't studying um, Torah Shebaal Peh at all. And uh, when I went to Barilan University, I joined the Midrashah and I joined the Talmud department and the English literature department simultaneously because I think these two worlds come together. I mean, literature gives you tools to understand texts and the Talmud and Halakha are texts that you need tools to, to, to understand and dive into. And uh, I did both um, both degrees. And then I said, okay, what it is that I want to concentrate on less. I had a very promising um, suggestion to move on to a straightforward doctoral program in the literature department. And I wanted to learn Torah. I wanted to learn Halakha. So I went to the Torah Not program, which was here in, in Yerushalayim. And I studied there for three years. On my third year, I married my husband, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Dov Rosen, and he said um, very gently, you know, you, you did the journey the other way around. Maybe first one should study Gemara, and then one should embark on studying Halakha. Maybe now it's time to start studying Gemara. And I said, no, now I want to concentrate on building my family. And I had uh, two kids, which are a year apart, and I was very happy in that place for a number of years. And when we moved back to Yerushalayim from the Koilad in Gush Etzion, where we were living, um, I said, I think Matan would be the right address for me to embark on this second stage of the journey of studying Talmud. And I joined the Talmud Institute. And from then it was just everything opened up. I mean, all the tools that I had from studying literature and studying halacha before helped me, obviously, to dive into the world of Talmud more easily. And um, since then, that's what I've been involved in. I've been teaching Gemara Iyun, Gemara Bekiut, Daf Yoimi, and then embarking on teaching halacha, the philosophy of halacha. I really hear very strongly from both of you, A, the need for the foundation for Gemara learning, okay, and that... Uh, that Halacha learning needs to come with that foundation. Whether one comes first or the other is is a is a different question. It has a lot to do with everyone's personal timelines. Um, I'm curious um, what whether you want to answer it regarding Gemara or you want to answer it regarding Halacha. What is it that what does it ignite inside of you? Meaning, what makes you want to come back the next day and keep going at it? And again, each in your own tchum, whatever whatever that is for you. Meaning, I'll just say, as everyone sort of thinks that for me, because I'm a, I'm a Tanakh person, I'm also engaging in the halachic side more in the past few years. But I mean, my heart, you know, is completely in the Tanakh side. And um, but I love. I love the toil. I love the gia that is involved in rigorous learning. Uh, I would say in halacha per se, that's something I enjoy very, very much. Uh, but specifically when I talk about where my heart is in Tanakh, I love feeling like I am just in a world that is far away, but that is ever present. Like there is that occupying that space of something that is both ancient and eternal is for me something that makes my my soul sing. And it's what brings me back. Teaching is a whole nother field. That's, that's different. I'm not talking about what we do in our daily lives, but I'm saying, what is it in that internal place that you feel is, is turned on that makes you want to come back? Um, I think for me, I think this is true both for Gemara and Halacha, but it's feeling part of a bigger system, um, really connecting, you know, tapping into everything that was done in previous generations and how things were understood. Um, and I think for Halacha specifically, um, you know, if you just know, you, we know sort of what our practice is, what if we grew up in, you know, doing certain things or whatever, um, but it could just feel like very random details, um, don't really understand where it all came from. 
Um, and I think through going through Halakha Biyun and understanding it as part of a system, it's just, it's much broader than that. And it's just, you understand it makes so much sense, um, where everything's coming from. And you're just part of this, I don't know, beat midrash that's larger than yourself. Right. Little, uh, that image comes to mind where Soloveitchik, right, would speak about, right, everyone's nodding heads here for those of you who can't see. <laughs> Right, that he's speaking to the Rambam and he's speaking to to Yosef Karo and he's speaking to all all the generations before him. So you're saying it really appeals to that place of connecting with the generations and also you're speaking about it, an internal logic also, right? That it, you like that feeling where things fit into a broader system that feel they make sense. And they're not just these random particles that I've picked up along the way that I should do this or that. For me, it's the boundless richness of of the Talmud world which is also halakha. The Talmud speaks in so many different languages. It has the, the, the language of a garata. It has the language of a set legal system. It has the language of social life. There's so many fabrics and layers in the world of Talmud that just keep me interested, keep me invigorated. And I feel, you know, that there's a book that was translated from English, and, um, an English book, which is called Eretz Chayota Pere, right? When you embark Where the wild on the things land- are. Right. Where the well things are. That's what I feel, that when I embark on a page of Talmud, I know that I'm going to find wild things, very humorous, very clear thinking, yet cloudy thinking at the same time. And I have to wade my, my, my way through, through this maze, through this really enchanting forest of, of Talmud. This, this means a lot of energy. And I feel that from this point, this is where I enter halakha as well. People usually tend to look at halakha as a very restrictive system. While I understand it to be completely different, there are so many possibilities to help people get out of situations they're in, to solve things that might seem halakhically you know, you, you just can't solve it or you, you, you just can't come forward with anything that would be helpful. I think that's wrong. I think that halakha, which emerges from the world of Talmud, offers you just that, the the so many doors that you can, you know, you can walk through and decide, okay, I'm going to try and solve this problem from this aspect or or from another aspect and, and let's try this. And the more fields of halakha you know, you can also borrow from one field of halakha to another. And we see this in the Talmud that different halakhic topics are discussed in different contexts, in financial context, in the context of Hilchot Shabbat, in the context of Isur Veheter, and you ask yourself, why are they discussed in those varied contexts and situations in the Gemara? Because the Gemara is telling you, you can solve this particular case in so many different ways. And it's this rich world that has so much energy packed into it that keeps me going. Wow. So you're saying really being being drawn into into that world and that the more halakha you learn, the more freedom you uncover within the system. That is very true. Um, Beautiful. I really would like to move a little bit into the project that you both are working on, uh, into Shaila. And so tell me a little bit about it. Where did the idea come from? Um, How does a question come to you and where does it go from there? Two different questions. How did this come about and then how the process goes? Right. So I'm a graduate of the first cohort of of Hilcheta. And while we were studying on our first, fourth year out of the six, I was thinking, I was looking at my friends, my colleagues in the class, and I said, we have to do something with these women, with this amazing energy of women who have been studying Gemara, are involved already in the whole world of teaching Torah for many years, and now they're learning Halakha. And we have students coming from the Beit Midrash to us with questions. Some of them we can answer, some of them we can't yet. And we have to do something with this um, group of Bemet, amazing women who are committed, who are Yereot Shamaim, who are, I would say, in love with what they're doing, with our tradition, with everything that it has to offer. And I said, we, and, and we also have to teach ourselves to write. So I wanted to create a platform that would serve both purposes. First, to to truly have a place where women 
take the commitment of sitting and writing halakha and standing behind what they're writing and they know that it's going to be published, they know that it's going out to hundreds, yeah, sometimes. Anonymous female writers have been going on for a while, but another stage was right. writing with your name in front of it. Right. Yes. And, and we have... We have similar processes in the world of literature, right? That women hid behind their names or behind male names. Until recently, there were publications that wouldn't let you put it in there if your name was a woman's in front of it. They've changed their policies since then. But I'm speaking about halachic, right? Kitve'et, right? That that haven't that had a difficulty with that. We're not in that place anymore, largely. But but right. you're saying assuming your name and assuming responsibility for what you're doing. I'm just pointing out is like another step in the process. And I also wanted to to um, go about creating our own root, our own voice. And what type of voice would that be? Well, we know that the world of halakha has moved, or chunks of it, or 50% of it has moved into the virtual community world, where people just ex- exchange information. And, and when you're trying to go back to the original tshuva that people try to to derive information from you don't really know how they got to a certain conclusion they did and I said somebody has to take responsibility over that and to create and publicize chuvot that are founded in the so in the sources that people who read them understand the process of how to get from A to B and they can benefit from it so it was like it was a um, a double meaning to what we were doing creating a platform for women to write and to take responsibility over their writing and to give a service to people who turn to Google, you know, to find halachic answers. And, um, and getting a response that's higher level than three sentences. Yes, yes, no, asul mutah. That, that, that then other people who didn't ask that question apply to their own life because they assume that their scenario was similar. I mean, that happens also with the internet, which is that you just look up a question. A lot of what happens with halacha questions is that it's also very based on personal circumstance. And so people will take an answer that they saw on a website and then they apply it to their own life, even though with their circumstances, the answer may not have been necessarily that similar. Right. It also happens when you ask verbally. You get a, an answer and then you spread it around. This danger exists already in, you know, in, in a but here we have a tool where we can actually record the actual answer and people can go back to it and, and, and read it. Well, if I had a conversation with, you know, with uh, an halachic figure, then nobody else can go back to this conversation. Well, here you can. Fran, I would love if you would tell us also a little bit about how you um, bring some of this material out to the world, um, other than being on the Matan website. Sure. Um, I think, well, one of the things that Sarah kind of touched on is the accessibility f- um, factor here. Um, I think we live in a day and age where people are used to, you know, I have a question, let me either WhatsApp my friend or pull out our phones and Google. And it's really amazing that technology has made that available to us. Um, and I think it's important in terms of people looking for halachic answers to sort of keep up with that. Um, for because that's what we're, that's how we're used to getting our information, um, and so I think part of our goal here is to really make this something that's accessible. Someone who has a question, uh, they know where to go, and they know they're going to get reliable information. Um, and they're and like Sarah said, they're going to understand where it's coming from um, instead of just getting you know a one word answer or someone anyone can write anything, right? That's um, and you don't know you know are they saying that because that's what they do? Or are they saying it based on sources? Um, so there's, you know, we post, um, the in-depth answers on the Matan site, but there's a form there for anyone who has a question, they can go on and ask a question. Um, there's also a WhatsApp number, um, a phone number, um, which is you, which is Rabbanit Sarla. Which is Rabbanit Sarla. Okay. Um, and they can send in a question. They'll get a short, an- uh, you know, a quicker answer back. And so- and then some of the answers are written up in a longer Chuva form oh, okay. that go up on the site. How can people access, meaning they can go on the Matan website. Is there also a way that some of that information is accessed on other websites or other outlets? Yes. Yeah, so we're working on, this is a 
new project we're pretty excited about. Um, we're working on a project with Sfaria. Um, we're putting our the Chu voter going up there. Um, and what's you know interesting about this project is we're putting this we're making source sheets for every chuva. So that means someone who sees a chuva, either they receive the chuva themselves or they saw a chuva that they're interested in and now they want to learn it more in depth. There's now source sheets Beautiful. with all the background sources on the page that they can go in and read. Wow. And that'll also be a resource for teachers, I guess, if it's on Sepharia, right? It def- it's also, yeah, uh, teachers it could are using be. That. It definitely could be. It comes up when, when, you, you know, when you're in one of those sources, so you can link back to our page. Beautiful. I want to add another aspect that I, I forgot to mention before, the whole community aspect. I mean, I live in a neighborhood where many people don't belong to any specific community. They go shul shopping, and I'm not saying it in a critical way. They really want to experience different forms of davening, different types of um, community life here in, in Yerushalayim. And there are women who make aliyah, and they don't really have any connection to any specific um, rabbis or any other rabbinic authority. And from from speaking to those women and from actually seeing it in, in my old build in my own building, I had uh, a neighbor who walked in one day with a very simple question. And and I was like, what did you do till now? Who, who were you asking questions? And she said, I didn't. I mean, I, I just left it. I was either machmir on myself or to make on myself, because we don't belong to a community that has a rabbi. We have a community, but there's no rabbi to the community. And I really didn't have any address that I could turn to and I would feel uh, that it's an accessible go-to address. And since then, since the embarkment of, of, of Shaila, I've been hearing that a lot from from friends, from uh, sometimes it's women who are divorced, sometimes it's women who are single, sometimes who, uh, women who have families and just they don't go to shul and they don't necessarily have any uh, rabbinic figure that, that they can cons- consult with. Yeah, and I, I think that... Um First of all, we often assume that people just have institutions that they're associated with, and many people are not. Or it was so long ago that it no longer feels relevant at all, even right. if they were well-connected there. Ten years passed, right? And why this, that, I'm not going to call them up anymore. So I think that that's a, a really powerful point. And I think another another powerful point is the woman piece, meaning people might know rabbis, but they might women might not want to ask them. And I'm not just talking about a Hilchonita question. I'm not just talking about, you know, stains or all different elements of family purity. But but even even if it's a kosher's question or even if it's something that's quote unquote not so personal, it's personal, right? And people don't necessarily want to open up to a to a, to a rabbi that they might be a lovely person. They may not know them well. They don't feel the same natural intimacy, intimacy with them. That's very true. 80% of the questions we get have nothing to do with family purity. They have to do with everything else that goes on in your life. Educating your children, your kitchen, your davening, your hair covering, all sorts of things. Financial issues that people have to do with tzedakah, masr safim. So, and I think that's something I'm very involved in as the project and activities coordinator of sort of trying to get to those people that Sarah mentioned that might not have an address. Um, and the piece you mentioned of, you know, people have institutions, but they might go back. There's also Matan as an institution. We're connected to a lot of people. And this is another way of we can go to people and as Matan talk about, you know, how can another way Matan can be helpful to you. Um, so we're working right now to, you know, to be in touch with different people, different groups, college students who go back to campus might not have someone to ask questions to people who are asking questions online in Facebook groups or things like that. This is another place to get reliable information online. Um, so that's something we're working on. Yeah, no, that's it's really of, of paramount importance. And as you said before, this is how we're all used to getting information now. And um, I mean, even a rabbi that I might ask, you know, I, I, I a, a crazy example. Uh, we had a very crazy situation. We have a huge trampoline in our on our, on our porch, and we live in the highest point at this point in Gush Etzion. And one night, of we got we we got it in the third lockdown, and this was like maybe two months later. Crazy, crazy, crazy winds, like really insane. And how do we know how insane it was? Because we woke up in the morning at six o'clock in the morning, and my husband looked aside and he said, "Where is the trampoline?" <laughs> okay. Now we have we do, we live on a ground floor, but the ground floor in Gush Etzion means that there's other people who live below you. Okay, but you with you yourself are by are by the street level. We have a two meter high fence, and it was a three meter wide trampoline. And he's like, "Where is it?" He leaves the house at six in the morning. He goes looking down the street. 
He finds a trampoline. It had somehow blown over the the two meter high fence, turned left. We discover later broke three cars on the way and made its way to the trash can, okay, which was down the street, completely destroyed the trampoline. You can laugh. You can laugh into the microphone. It's a ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous story. I think this is the first time in a long time that we had a genuine halacha question. I mean, my husband is a lawyer, so he immediately was looking up the liability question. Yes. This is what's called, uh, it was like literally, it was not negligence. It was no normal reason why a three meter wide trampoline would blow over a two meter wide fence. Everybody in the neighborhood has trampolines. So, Ilomashan, there even was there's an actual precedent for that in 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 law and we weren't responsible and then we we're like okay we also of course need to figure out how to be good neighbors that's what we did afterwards but okay like luckily do we have a responsibility it was the first time in a long time i think that we really had like a real question and thank god we have someone who's a good friend of ours also a dayan comes in handy and we called him we called him on the phone and you know we we spoke about it and he knows it's me i like not my husband i like all the sources so he sends me the sources you know and we we schmooze about it but but it's i whenever that happens i don't take for granted that i know that i have somebody to call the security and and that's a big deal because otherwise you look up, you just put your hands up and you're like well what do i do now you know because most shuls as you said don't have a rabbi and most people don't have a day on, on speed dial so it's Speed dial, that's a really old phrase. Who says that anymore, right? There's no such thing as speed dial. I don't even know anyone's number. (laughs) Um, And so that's a really big gift that you're giving people, and I assume women mostly, in in who you're responding to. Yeah, and even if you don't know the answer yourself, and you can say, I haven't studied this in depth, you can connect people to, you know, to other to other people who, who might know because you're in the conversation, you're involved in that world, you know people who are dealing with halakha and you can actually give this service as well. Not everybody's an expert in every field of halakha and one might as well admit it before giving, you know, yeah. an answer which in every is field, uh, yeah, mediocre. It's worthwhile, it's worthwhile uh, admitting. But you're in, in the know, right? You know who to turn to further and, and give aid to mm-hmm. people who turn to you. Yeah. To give everybody a, a better sense of what we're talking about, I want to. I'm going to read a question that was given into Shaila, and I want to hear about about uh, about the answer, about the the different factors that go into writing that answer. I just want to clarify for all those listening that these are written on the website, and that you can look this up and see the answer on the website. For the sake of of this forum, we're going to speak orally about the answer, but uh, but you can look up the the question yourself and see everything written down. Dear Rabbanit, I was once present at a shiva to which you had brought a small baby. This person knows you personally. I was surprised that one of the mourners asked you to take the baby out, at which point you respectfully and quietly left the building. Since the person who was sitting shiva is a learned rabbi, I wondered whether he was correct that you should not have brought the baby and whether you indeed needed to leave. (laughs) So you can imagine that this question took me by surprise because it was basically a personal question about me and what do I think then and now about the situation I was in, both halachically and socially. So um, first of all, I was I was pondering whether this was this was the right question to go online. We, we get questions, all sorts of questions, and some of them don't have the nature of a question that should be put online, but rather discussed only privately, because it belongs to, to very particular and, and certain circumstances that other people cannot derive their own, you know, answer to their questions from. So, I, I chose this this question because of a few elements that were involved in it, and it will also explain the process that each of us meshivot goes through when we think about answering. So at first, I felt this is not really a halachic question. This is a question of you know of a social circumstance and how do people react to each other under very painful situations, right? And then I was thinking, yes, but 
what halacha has to say about this situation also dictates or also teaches us how to go about these situations. And if I think, what's the major factor in going to a mourner's house? It's to give them comfort. So whatever aggravates a mourner, you should not be the one causing this aggravation. Whether he is halachically or she is halachically wrong or right, it doesn't really matter what halacha has to say in this particular situation because the reason you came to the shiva is to comfort mourners. And when you cause aggravation, you should, you should move this you know, element of aggravation or yourself if you are the one aggravating the mourner. I will say as someone who unfortunately has sat shiva that... <laughs> There are a lot of great pieces online giving people advice about what not to say to Shiva. I think there are many worse things that happen there than people bring in babies. But that was what came to my mind when, uh, I mean, I, I feel blessed. There were many lovely people, but Shiva can be a rough place socially. It's a, people have a hard time figuring out how to behave in those scenarios. So, right. Uh, and I understood that that was one element that was standing behind the question. And other element was that she saw two people she respects as being knowledgeable in Torah. And she was surprised that one of the, one of the sides, meaning the person sitting Shiva, who is a learned person, was telling the other person that what they're doing is wrong. And she wanted to honestly ask. She said to me, while I was, I spoke to her privately afterwards, I take my babies to Shiva all the time, and I don't know whether I'm doing something wrong. And the fact that the mourner doesn't tell me anything doesn't mean that it doesn't disturb them. Maybe I should stop doing that. So can you or can't you bring a baby uh, to a shiva? Um, so that's why I was thinking that one should go through the actual halachic discussion about bringing a baby to a shiva. But I think that the the main core of the of the answer should be this is more to do with wisdom, you know, of social understanding of what's behind comforting people and this should be the the main drive of when you go to a shiva it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong halachically but nonetheless the information about whether you are allowed to bring a baby to a shiva should be there online but this was like a classic example of a question i was i was grappling with whether i should put it online or 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 not and and in terms of the actual literature that exists about babies in shiva could you give us like a a one minute summary because I was surprised that there is there is real discussion about it I, I was I didn't expect that the assumption is and it's a correct assumption that babies make people feel happy and babies Except bring in the middle of the night <laughs> <laughs> and you're their well, parent <laughs> you don't sit shiva in the middle of the night <laughs> and um, and they bring joy and what we're trying to do well in the days of sitting shiva Baruch Hashem, thank God, I don't have any personal experience with that, is that a person's mind should not be averted from the avalut, from the mode of mourning. And we assume that babies do cause you to, you know, think about other more joyous moments in your life. And uh, therefore, the poski mentioned that a mourner should not place a baby on, on his or her lap while in mourning. Well, y- you meet this in the poskim and then you say, okay, but what about mothers? I mean, is is a mother not allowed to see her baby for seven days? Or what, What you know, how do we go about this halakha when we're talking about parents taking care of children? Are we only talking about babies who come from outside, who don't belong to the actual family? What are the parameters of this halakha? And when I was speaking about the, the, um, the different aspects and roots that we have in halakha to discuss that come up from the Talmud itself, this is an example of it. Where do we imply it? Where do we not imply it? What do we take into the discussion? What do we leave out? So I can't tell you a bottom line halakha because it depends who is sitting Shiva. What's the relationship between the person sitting Shiva and the baby? I think something that I've come to appreciate more and more as I learn halakha more bi'iyun that I think you're expressing also but just even when I try and ask you a pointed question is that we look at halakha as a system which it is as Fran mentioned before but within that system there are so many individuals and that like all legal codes right we have we have the code and then we have right. the reality of how it plays out and there's a reason why there's so many court cases in the world because we have all the rules but we have to figure out how to actually use them in real life and we when when we look at halakha from afar and when i say afar i mean even people keeping halakha on a daily 
basis, but they're not engaged in learning it on a regular basis, we tend to look at it in like very broad brushstrokes that are not particularly accurate, that there are so many specific scenarios that require specific discussion. And that when we're in our daily life, we sort of find this middle ground between behaving like a mensch based on our intuition, based on how much how we've been taught and brought up in our Torah life until now. Of course, that's part of our what we call quote unquote intuition. But but there's also a lot of room for discussion for things that come up. And there are halachic aspects to things even when we don't think that there are. And that I think that's what's unique and special about this program is that it reminds us that we're all cases, meaning, I mean, in a good way, meaning we all have cases on a regular basis. And it doesn't have to be a ridiculous story about a trampoline. Like it also can be something in your kitchen or something silly. And we sometimes forget it because we think halacha is big and out there, but it's actually really small in particular uh, in our in our daily life. The famous words of Monty Python, right? <laughs> You're all individuals. <laughs> exactly. That, that was what I was going at. Before we, we close for today, I, I wanted to address two issues that to me are really meta-halachic issues that I think are particular to our discussion today and also in general to halachic learning. The first is about is about commitment, um, that I think those of us certainly who teach um, text, who teach halacha, um, who teach Torah in all of its forms, that we, we see that Commitment to halacha is something, the word commitment itself is just not so popular. Let's put it that way. Uh, it's not a very popular word. It's not cool. Uh, and that we're in an age where people really want to connect. And that's a great thing. Um, people want to connect and they want to feel personally connected. But it also sometimes means they want to feel convinced um, before they're going to be committed to halacha. And I just... Those are obviously some of those are my personal approaches to it, but I'm just curious if either of you want to speak to that topic as as women who learn and teach halacha, how that plays into your daily life in, in any particular way. So I think that like exactly like you said, we live in a time where, well, first of all, I think we're very, we're open, we're open to other ideas, we're intellectual, we're thinking about things, we're exposed to a lot of things. Um, and I think there very much is that piece of people, the I or who am I and where do I fit into that system and wanting to feel connected to it and wanting to, you know, understand what this does for me. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing, right? When we're talking about keeping Torah and keeping halacha and wanting to under, not just wanting to keep it because that's what the book says to do, but really wanting to feel it. Um, but I think it's a challenge. I think that works very well sort of as a hashkafat olam. Like I'm going to let everything, um, anything goes and I'm going to feel it and feel how it works for me. And I think for halacha where suddenly there's rules and there's, you know, do I, how do, how do you do it? Um, it's a very big challenge. Um, I don't have all the answers. Um, I think part of it is learning more and understanding. Um, like I said, sometimes it just feels like random details and, you know, why am I doing this? I've definitely gotten, I remember this particular story, but I've gotten this questions in many iterations. Um, uh, I think I was teaching Borer on Shabbat, right, separating things. And a student finally looked, and we're talking about literally the most technical things and how do we do this? Um, and a student looks up to me at me and says, does God really care if I pick out the strawberries from my melon on Shabbat? Um, and it was a very, you know, without going into the, the actual halachot of that situation, but that I feel like students are, that's what they're wondering. Uh, I've gotten that question in so many forms. What do you answer? Because by the way, I grew up in a house where that's what my father said to me. God doesn't care <laughs> about the seeds and the watermelon. I mean, he, I grew up in a home with a very healthy dose of, of skepticism. That was that was the milk that I drank from my from that's my in amazing the forest father. Gemara. Yeah. Does God care about where you shech the animal? I mean, um, there's a whole discussion around that. Yeah. So I I I'm just curious. What I'm sure you've 
come up with all different things. Right. I don't have all the answers. I mean, I think part of it is to encourage, I think to encourage that sometimes we can go too far to the other extreme and just know, you know, go through the technical acts, but lose the feeling that is meant to be behind it. Um, And so I I actually really like to encourage, you know, the place where that thought came from of, oh, I actually want to feel connected to this and I want to understand where it's coming from. Um, I'm going to keep going back to the, I'm a halakha, but you and teacher. So I'm going to keep going back to that point. But I really do think, you know, as you learn more, right, you understand the system, you understand what we're trying to get at and what the broader picture is here. And yeah, it does translate itself into details and any legal system deals at the end of the day, right? It starts with these broad ideas and it, and it translates down into these little detailed questions. Um, and it's not only about the detailed questions, you know, it's about there's these broader ideas that we're trying to reflect in society. And sometimes the way to make sure that these ideas will be continued in society is through dealing with those little pieces. Um, but I think a piece of it is to learn, you know, the broader idea. Um, and I think it is a very, it's a healthy question that everyone's not in a sense of, well, I'm not going to do it then because I don't think God cares about it, but to look up from the books and the black and white and this and that and ask the question, like, why am I doing this? I think that's, I think that's important. I think it's something we should be encouraging. Um, but I think there does need to be that leap of being committed to the system. I'm, I'm going to do like asking it basically. It's a question of, right? There's so many stigiot about this about asking questions and, and it's all about how you're asking it. I think, um, and I think it is a very important question to be asking. Um, with, but the question is what the underlying assumption is. Is the assumption that convince me or else I won't do it? Or the assumption is I'm going to do this, but I would like to feel that I am integral in this process. Also, first of all, I think God does care about it. Kodesh Baruch Hu gave us halacha. Kodesh Baruch Hu gave us detailed information about how he wishes us to keep Torah and mitzvot and, and to guide us through the maze of life, through the maze of the differences between Kodesh and Chol, Tumah and Tahara. And this means that as a Jewish person with everything, every breath you take in your life, this, this might sound like so big and ambitious, you are involved in thinking of, of the the halachic system of the of the Torah value of of mitzvot, and you're doing something that God cared about. Um, I'm not going to speak to him as if he's a human being, but I might just try. Thought about and thought this was the appropriate way for human beings to live. So I think yes, God cares about it. But I do want to talk about um, how do we define commitment. I mean, I see people who are struggling really daily on a daily basis just to keep themselves within. They don't want to be considered outside and they have many challenges in their life and they don't want to be considered as as creating something else, something new, something that needs to be redefined. And and they're trying to give nuances to what we call, uh, you know, um, the orthodox community. And it is our responsibility, the people who, who have the information, the people who can help these people try and, and rethink about how they maintain themselves within the community, within keeping halakha, within, you know, wanting to belong. And, and we cannot run away from it on, on the basis of, ah, people don't really want to be committed. They do. They're just asking themselves, how on earth do we do this? And what does that halakha means in our life? And, and, and we are supposed to be giving them aid in, in trying to answer these questions and the need to continue and be committed on one level or another. That's a really beautiful response. I think also what you're, what you're pointing at is that what can sometimes seem on the outside to be challenge and um, even sometimes rejection is actually someone searching to find themselves in that thing. I think, Fran, you also were really touching upon this, that that they're, they're and I agree with you, I sometimes am always so surprised, even, like, I keep alakha, of course, and I keep alakha in private as well, but I'm always sometimes surprised that people are also really doing that. You know, there's, it's almost like it's so crazy so many things we do, and certainly if you talk about family purity, that's for sure, but but not even, and and I always am so surprised when people ask a question, and and I realize, like, wow, like, people are really committed to doing this, and, and it could be that you would guess that from the outside, and it could be that you wouldn't, and right. And and what you're saying is that people are mamash right. dying muslimat nafsha, meaning they're really putting themselves on the line to keep themselves 
inside the community because they want to be here and they believe in being here and they're trying to figure out how they can do that and here's the modern piece while retaining their authentic self whatever that might mean for that particular person right, right. i had questions you know just just before pesach a few a few weeks ago and there was one question when i could hear that the person was struggling with it was a question of kashrut bilchot pesach and now and i was really try, trying to help and I, and i was trying to break my head over coming up with a solution and then it was a man he stopped me and he said no i just want you to tell me what i am supposed to do don't try and solve the problem for me i just want to know what the halakha is and if you would know this person if you would see him on the street you you know we we are so judgmental you wouldn't think that this is a person who would insist on just wanting to know what it is it that he's supposed to be doing in this situation yeah totally i i guess i also want us to address at this point briefly but address the the question or, or the fact that we're all sitting here and we're women um speaking about halakha in what to me is the most natural conversation i mean i could talk about this all day long really <laughs> if i would be allowed to in my life but then people tell me to calm down and stop being so intense but um but i i there's some i think we're at a place where it's an evolution i don't think that this has been there have been moments of revolution but i think that largely there's been an evolution how this has come to be that that here you have two women who are you know really uh gemara and alakha teachers par excellence and i guess i'm curious how you view your role at this moment of history and when i say this moment of history i mean this moment of women engaged in learning and teaching i am very aware of the fact that uh women really deeply interested and engaged in learning Torah on a high level or still by far the minority of orthodox women and I don't True. and I don't minimize the fact that other people are not interested other women are not interested in that that's perfect you know if it worked for your great grandmother it'll definitely work for you now do you know what I'm saying but but I guess I'm curious how you view your your role uh and what you might want to bring at this moment of history which I think is also an exciting one So that's a big question. I think if I thought about that on a daily basis, I'd probably be overwhelmed. Um, <laughs> but I'll touch on two uh, two elements, I guess, that I thought about. Um, first of all, I think we already spoke a lot about this process of Torah Shabbat Peh and how there's the there's you know the human involvement in it and the individual cases. Um, and I think part of what's going on here is in order to answer a question well and to you know there's as As Sarah spoke about, there's all these different sources where you can look at it from different angles and like how, how are we going to choose what angle we're going to look at it from and how are we going to bring in which cases? And we spoke about, you know, these broad ideas that come down into little details. Um, and I think in order, you really, in order to answer the question, you really have to understand who's sitting in front of you and you have to really understand the details of the question and the circumstances. Um, and I think there's an element here of relatability, depending, of course, on the question and not every question we get has to do specifically with women or with, you know, a baby being brought to Shiva, which is a circumstance that a young mother might find herself in. Um, but I think there's in a way we're able to understand that question in a broader context, understand where it's coming from. Um, and we saw that, you know, we spoke about already a lot how halakhically that really makes a difference. So that's one element. That it, that it actually could impact the answer that's given, meaning based on how much someone can intuit the circumstance of the person that they're speaking to. Yeah, to really understand where they're coming from in that question, really understand the circumstances, being able to imagine it. Um, and I think the other another piece of it is just accessibility. Um, we spoke about not everyone has someone they feel comfortable picking up the phone and calling. Um, and we want I don't I want people to feel like they have someone in their lives that they can pick up the phone and talk to about this the most natural thing. Um, even when there's all these personal things involved in it. Um, and sometimes that conversation is going to be a friend or you know a woman in your community that you feel like you can turn to with these type of things. Sometimes it might be a little bit more comfortable. So at this point in history, I feel that first of all, there are women who have been in the system, who have been learning and discoursing in, in Gemara and Halakha and, and, and Bichlal in, in the Jewish world and texts um, for, for the past 30, 40 years, some of us even 50, the ones who were Zorich to start early. And um, it's critical that we take the responsibility of, of, first of all, sharing our experiences 
and how to go about it, how to embark on this journey and to empower and strengthen women who are starting now. I mean, most schools in Israel still don't have Torah Shebe'al Peh in their curriculum. And that means that women start later, right? They would start after Shirut Leumi, they would start after the first degree, they would start after the army, whenever. And we have to strengthen strengthen them and empower them and give them the understanding that A, not to hide the fact that it is a long journey and you really do need Mesirut Nefesh for this journey and not to stop in the middle and truly to go all the way if if you have obviously the the power to do it and the uh, talent to do it and also to to try and, and make sure that these programs go on. You know that most of these programs don't have government funding. For me, as a personal project, I, I am trying to funnel through, you know, through the Knesset members, through women I know who are in the public arena to try and, and get government funding for these programs. Because if, if we want more women to be influencing the world of Torah, influencing the, the world of society in general, we need to provide them with programs, with teachers, that this should be something this country is interested in and is encouraging. I think we have embarked on a point since there are women teaching halakha, teaching Torah, teaching Talmud for so many years now that we, we, we should be moving on from the question of whether women should be doing this or how women are doing this. I mean, we should go beyond the gender issue. Having a person who is knowledgeable, having people who are able, having women who are able to help people in the community, whether men and women, it shouldn't really matter whether it's a, a woman teaching or a man teaching. Obviously, we're striving to create as many more roots to people's hearts and people's minds. And that means that you definitely need to have women in the system. But this shouldn't be questionable any longer. This should be something that we are we're welcoming, that we understand that this is a blessing. And if we're still asking this question after 30 years, it means that the community still needs, you know, to be reminded that if 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 it wasn't there, who'd, who would be teaching their daughters when they go to years of Midrashot? Or when you want to have teachers in high schools and in primary schools that, you know, your daughters can look up to and your wives or your, you know, just young women around just to have somebody to talk to, somebody they can consult with. It's about time we moved on. I agree. <laughs> I think that... Uh for many of us who have been in the world of, of women's learning for a lot of years, we, when you live in a certain world, we forget what it feels like to live in a world where those assumptions are still very far away. Right. Uh, and so I, I'm with you, right? but I, I totally understand that there are still people who we live in the same place and we live on the same street, but we, our minds occupy different spaces. And so there is still work to go. And, and that's why we're going to be here for the long run. And we're going we're gonna to keep moving forward. We're going to keep moving forward with respecting people who, you know, who might look at it differently. Sure. That's also sure. very important to keep it Sibur as a Sibur. We don't have to agree on everything. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up for today, although I would love to keep schmoozing with you both. Um, I always like to close our conversations with a little a little uh, lightning round. Uh, we have two people, and we're going to have to figure out how to go. You guys could both answer it, or one of you could answer it. There's no, there's no obligations. It's just a way to get to know like a, non, a little non-halachic side of, of those of us sitting here. Um, Doesn't I'm, exist. I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only, you could only answer one, though, okay? What book is, are you actively reading that's on your nightstand? Fran. I'm reading Brene Brown, The Gift of Imperfection. Very nice. I just spoke about that yesterday with someone. <laughs> yes. I'm nice. actually reading uh, a story of Sipur Ale Ahava Vechoshech, Love Amos and Darkness Oz. of Amos Oz, because it really helps me to understand my parents and how I grew out of this world. Yes. it's uh, If anyone hasn't read either of those books, they're both phenomenal, and you can read them. And the, there's a great translation also of that book of Amosos. 
I think I've mentioned Brene Brown on the podcast up until now. <laughs> um, actually, this lightning round was taken and inspired by what she does in her podcast. Okay. If you could sit down with anyone and have a cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is you like to drink, who would it be? Someone that's been on my mind a lot lately is Rabbi Khan. Um, he should be well, Bezer Hashem. And I mentioned at the beginning, he was my the first person I learned Gemara from. You didn't say his name, but oh, you I said didn't you were in Stern, and he was also my okay. teacher. So, yeah, I don't remember if we were in class together. No, you were in advanced. Um, I was just intermediate. <laughs> but, uh, this is, sorry if this gets long for the lightning round. Um, no, it's okay. He, so just to, I guess... He, um, I really, I feel like I started my path to, in learning, learning Torsha Balpa with him. Um, I went there with no background, um, not having learned with it. And he's responsible for two things. One is just the fact that I decided to learn it. Um, he took time and sat with me in his office and told me stories of the Rav and, you know, what Rav Salvechik felt about why women should learn Gemara and, um, really convinced me, like, to join the class. Um, but, and also my skills are started from him. Um, it started from there. So I would love to go back first of all, just to say thank you. And also, you know, I've gone other places with it and to, to see, you know, what I built on that. Um, I'd love to tell him about that and thank him for that. And also be able to pick his brain as a Gemara teacher. And he's also a psychotherapist, which he used to hide from us, but we found out, Wow! but I actually saw him. You should know in a cafe. I guess it was a while ago, right? And I, I really wanted to go over to him. And also, I was totally embarrassed. I didn't go over to him. I was totally stage fright. But I was like, Sevi, he was my Gemara. I actually took him for Halacha, the Iyun, and many. I, like, I basically majored in him in, in Stern. And yeah, and um, totally, he's, he's one of the teachers who completely revolutionized women's learning in the States, 100%. He's behind a lot of women who I know. Moshe. Moshe Khan. Phenomenal teacher. Agreed. Yeah. First of all, I don't miss opportunities. I mean, everybody I want to sit down to coffee with, I would message them and, and just sit down to coffee with. But people who are unfortunately not allow, alive, it's my great grandmother. Her name was Chaya Reza Safra. Safro, and she was um, she was an active rabbinit in Disna, which was on the border of Poland and Russia. And after her husband died, my uh, great grandfather, um, she became basically the 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 woman that people turned to for halachic questions. She simply continued what her husband was doing, and I think in that world it was just a natural thing that people accepted upon themselves that she was the go-to address. She didn't need to do the journey I had to do. And not that I'm unappreciative of the journey I did. I'm, I'm very happy for it and grateful for it. But everything seemed so, so more natural for people to turn to her then and just to ask her what was it like. I think that that's ironic that your grandmother didn't have to work for something that you have to work for. That's a little bit of a, <laughs> of a historical irony. Um, our time is really closing today. I think I'm going to end with, with a final question, okay? And I am curious if you can share a favorite tefillah that, uh, that you can think of. It's something that's dynamic, by the way. I just want to preface that before you even answer. People always like to say it's something that I'm thinking about now. So it doesn't have to be your world favorite always, but something that right now is speaking to you. A tefillah that I've always loved is the tefillah for Knisah Lebez Midrash. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if everyone's familiar with it, but it's printed in, in the front of a lot of Gemaras. Um, I think I used to connect more to the, I like the concept of framing our learning with a prayer and, you know, before and after and sort of putting the learning into a religious and spiritual context in that way. I think for many years, I didn't really relate so much to the specific um, content of that prayer, which is very much halachic, um, you know, that I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't say that something's pure is impure and all sorts of things really halachic oriented. And I don't know that that was always the goal of my learning. Um, so it's more a concept. Although recently, you know, in recent years, that part also is very relevant i get a question and i i don't want to make a mistake and you know i and you really need siata deshmaya for that yeah i had a teacher when i was in seminary also left a real imprint on my heart and uh israeli rev from harnof and he used to say that every time he started teaching us and it left such an impression on me i totally i relate to that thank you i have a piyut which we sing uh, in Yom Kippur. I really can't say I say the words because I just break down in tears whenever we start the piyut ve'avita tehila. It's a piyut that speaks about the fact that human beings stand before God 
with their kishkas, right? With everything that goes wrong in their life, with everything that um, says that we're human, with our pains, with our needs, with our worries. And this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants. He wants tehillah. He wants his praise to come from human beings who are struggling, from human beings who are paining, who are joyous moments. This is what he wants. This is what he wants us to be, to be ourselves, to be human beings. And and that's his praise. And I, and I find this so comforting in so many moments in my, you know, private life during the year that when I stand there in Yom Kippur, it's it's like an acknowledgement of, yes, this is what you want from me. You just want me to live my life fully with the pain, with the joy, with the struggles, and this is your praise. I, I think it's a beautiful piyut. On that note, uh, I really want to thank both of you for coming out here today. And I think that this conversation... I think I think it's going to be really important and, and move women. And I really want to encourage anybody who feels that they're starting late in their learning. Totally. Go ahead. It's there is no such thing as late. We just work in chapters. Right. And and if you're debating, then please go ahead. Feel feel comforted to know that many of us are in the same place, and that life is bezrat Hashem, not so short, and that things can change. And uh, and to thank you both for continuing in your yigiyah and continuing in your toiling and your mesirut nefesh for Torah and being able to bring that to other women, to be uh, an example for other women and to bring your Torah Bezrat Hashem as far, as far as it can reach. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.